0: We've been working through um, a chapter of the Bible. Uh, The book is Hebrews, and the chapter is chapter 11. And the theme is faith, and he's just calling on a bunch of examples of amazing people, men and women, who exercise extraordinary faith in God in interesting and diverse situations. And uh, you have to be kind of dead on your feet spiritually, not to identify with something of what's going on in this chapter somewhere. And I trust that um, some of you are going to be set up in a new way today. So you can turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11. I think it's page 1755, is that right, where we are? So we're up to verse 29. Page 1755. And uh, we're going to read down to verse 34. Hebrews eleven twenty nine. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. We're going to pause there. What is faith actually for? What's it useful for? Uh, why, why do we spend so long? We spent these fa- past weeks just dwelling on the whole question of faith and the importance of faith, but what is it useful for in day-to-day life? Beyond, of course, the big answer, which is that faith is central to what it means to be saved, to become part of God's family and to be safe into eternity. I don't want to belittle that at all, but I think if you stop there and just think about faith in terms of um, what God is doing you know, to save you and bring you into his family and faith to trust him for eternity, then you've only got half the picture in the Bible of what faith is useful for. Because also the Bible paints this picture, especially in this chapter, but elsewhere, all over the place, actually. paints a picture of the usefulness of faith, the importance of faith, in your day-to-day life. And we've come across some of the examples already, with things like um, the need for faith to live a godly life. We were looking at Moses last week, weren't we? And how it just says a little bit earlier that by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It says he, didn't, he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And uh, it was all by faith. It was faith was absolutely central to his decision to live a godly life instead of a, you know, a crazy life as this prince in Egypt. And then we also earlier on we we're talking about how faith is central to your prayer life. Do you pray um, regularly? Do you pray boldly? Do you pray as though you think God's going to listen to you, or do you find yourself floundering in prayer? Well, basically, faith is central to that. Whether you pray well or don't pray well, whether you pray. With, with belief or or whether you don't. He tells us that in chapter 10 that he says, um, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, and so on and so on, he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So faith isn't just about your eternity. It is about that. But what I want to suggest to you today is that faith is as much about, if we can put it under this term, what you're here on earth to achieve before God. What God has given you to do with your time, your talents, your energies. I know some of us live under a deep sense of the self-conscious desire to obey God and walk in daily obedience and to strive for uh, the opportunities to serve him. But I think just as many of us live unaware that God might have a task for you to do that he might have, if I can put it like this, a destiny for you. But the Bible is absolute in its comprehensive description of God's will and plan for each individual. So one thing I'm certain of is that every one of us before God has a duty, a responsibility to walk by faith in day-to-day life and to seek to do something for him by faith, to make a dent, as it were. Not for your own fame, ambition, glory, but because... We're servants of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what the point is of the parable of the talents that he tells in Matthew 25? How he says, A master went away and he left five talents with one servant, and two talents with another, and one with another. And he said, tells them to get to work and use what he's given them. By talents, it doesn't mean your gifts, it means there's a portion of resources like money. And he comes back and he finds them and says, What have you done? And the the guys have done different things. But the guy with one talent said, I buried it in the ground because I was scared of you. And here it is. You can have it back. And he says, you wicked servant. Now, I, I think there's various ways you can understand that. But one of them is that before God, every person who's called into Christ's family is given opportunities and resources and gifts which you are called to use by faith for the sake of Jesus, his kingdom and his glory. And that is an an incredible privilege, as well as a scary, intimidating task. This is where I think we need to focus in on what's going on here. There are ten examples that I count in this passage that we've read of people who do incredible things by faith, and we're going to we're going to whittle through all ten of them. But he brings it to this summary right at the end when he just sort of says, and that they did things like. Conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, and so on and so on. None of that is to do with their kind of eternal salvation, which we need faith for. All of it is to do with what they achieved in the here and the now by faith for God. Which I'm suggesting to you is what this section is about. The calling to live by faith in the here and now. But I also want to make this case to you today... That I think when you, when you focus in on why has he chosen these particular examples here. I think that the thing they have in common between all of them. Is that all of them can be seen to be people. And we're going to look at the stories in brief. But all of them are people who were found in weakness. And God used them to achieve things for his strength. For his glory. So all of them had faith, but all of them were incredibly weak. And I want to make that as my main argument to you today when we look at these stories. That if you go through each of them carefully, what you see is the profound weakness of their situations and God's decision to use them because of their faith. I find that incredibly encouraging. When I consider myself and the calling that I feel God's put on my life, I don't feel particularly good at the things i do and i don't feel particularly well equipped for it i feel weak most of the time how amazing that it's god's choice to use weak people it's also interesting just from the perspective of thinking about well, who, why is god like this why does he have this preference for the weak something that you see running all through the scriptures the preference for for the weak, that he chooses outsiders and misfits and rejects and all this kind of stuff. And it's there, just in in that list of the last things that he says, he says that they were made strong out of weakness. They were made strong out of weakness. That's what God delights to do. So let's consider each of these examples. I trust God's going to be challenging you and stirring you up if you've discounted or disqualified yourself before him or you've thought of yourself as uber-qualified for the task that God's put before you. He's going to humble you to the dust as well. Here we go. The first one. The whole people of Israel. It says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Do you know this This story. Maybe you've seen the cartoon, The Prince of Egypt, I don't know. But anyway, God rescues his people, a million of them, from slavery in Egypt. He inflicts plagues upon the Egyptians because they refuse to let them go. Ten plagues in sequence until eventually they flee and escape from under Pharaoh's hand. But then Pharaoh changes his mind and he says, I'm going to go after them and kill them all. And they find themselves cornered, basically, because they're at the point where they're, they're about to cross the Red Sea, but they're stuck between the Red Sea and the hordes of Egyptians coming up behind them. Now, you don't have to have much sort of theological astuteness to understand just how weak they were in that position. They are unarmed, outnumbered, outgunned, and totally with their back against the wall, as it were. They either drown or get slaughtered. And then when you actually read the story of the Exodus and you, you understand what's going on here, not only are they weak in in their situation of just being totally you know, they're about to get annihilated. It reminds me of really of the situation of the church so many times in its history. You think think back to what you know of the book of Acts when the church early church began, 120 people in an upper room. How easy it would have been for the candle of the church to be a Blown out right at the very start. And nothing had come of the church. People were trying to obliterate the church. Then you you go forward in history and you come across moments like the Reformation. When Martin Luther suddenly understood again what the gospel was all about. Because the whole of Europe was clouded by a confusion that had come in within the Catholic church about what, what Jesus came to do for us. Martin Luther sees it for the first time, but the first thing that the church wants to do is pummel him, destroy him and his message. And it starts to crop up, and once it's released, you know, it goes from small pockets of people to being across the whole of Northern Europe, and now it's across the whole world, the message of the gospel, the message of Christianity. You think about what happened in China, in the, I think it was in the 1940s, when they, they were expe- the, the missionaries were expelled from China. And everyone thought the Chinese church is going to die. It was already small. And then we hear years later that behind the Iron Curtain, the church has exploded in size. From weakness, God multiplied it into strength. And I take heart because, you know, when you look at the situation in Britain today, the church, people are always talking about how bad things are getting. Religions on the wane, the rise of the nuns, people who on the census want to write, I've got no religion, no religious affiliation. And yet, despite the weak numbers of the church, you see pockets of hope because God never abandons his people. Your back's against the wall. You've got the Red Sea on one side, the Egyptians on the other side. Weak, weak, weak. That's when God most delights to reveal himself. But not only are they weak in their kind of physical situation. You actually read the passage. You find out these people are weak in their faith itself because when they see Pharaoh coming, it says they lift up their eyes and they feared greatly and the people cried out of Israel, cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You talk about ingratitude, These people are saying, they're literally saying, we would rather go back into slavery than have followed you out here into freedom because all they can see before them is death and being buried. Now, friends, this is people at their worst. This is people at their most defeated, ungrateful to God, afraid, but there is just the seed, just the tiniest flicker of faith because it says they cried to the Lord. And in that moment of desperation, God shows his strength through weak people. He says, He makes a way through the seed, they walk through it, and they're, they're saved. Weakness. Here's our next example. He goes on, he talks about the people of Israel again. So this is uh, the people of Israel next generation, verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. This is one of the weirdest stories you'll see in the Bible. They're beginning to march into Canaan to come take the land. One of the first cities they come across is the city of Jericho. They send a couple of spies in who come back and give a report. And then God gives them a strategy for taking the city of Jericho. He says, march around it once for six days. And then on the seventh day, march around it seven times and blow all your trumpets. This is the most unorthodox war strategy in the history of, of, of war. And in fact, they, they don't really have to do much because they, they obey God and the walls come crumbling down. You know the story if you've, read, if you've read it in the book of Joshua. What's going on here? God is putting them in a position, deliberately in a posture of total weakness and dependence, because he's saying, you're not going to win this by how mighty your army is. You're going to win it by doing something really stupid and illogical. (laughs) And it seems to me that when you're reading the Bible, that is often what God calls for. He calls for obedience in the most illogical, unreasonable ways because he's testing whether we're willing to put ourselves in a posture of weakness so that we truly depend on him. I think about examples like when the guy, Naaman, had leprosy. And what's the instruction that comes from the prophet? He says, go and bathe in the Jordan seven times. And the guy's like, why? He said, just go do it. Now, there's nothing magical about the Jordan. I've been there. I've seen people getting baptized in it because they think it's magical. But friends, my wife was one of those. (laughs) There is nothing magical about the Jordan waters. But the point is, will will he humiliate himself in this way by bathing seven times and then get healed? You think about other examples, like when Jesus says to his disciples, you know, they, they've been out fishing all night and they come back in, and he says, Cast your nets into the other side. And these guys are master fishermen. Jesus is a carpenter, he's a landlubber, and he tells them how to go and get their fish. And, you know, there's nothing particularly sensible about trying the other side of the boat. It's like something superstitious you might try, but it's definitely not a logical way to catch fish. But hey, they catch some fish. You think about how Jesus said to us as his people, the way to greatness to the kingdom in the kingdom of God is through service. Does that make any sense? It only makes sense if you understand that God makes people great. So as you lower and abase yourself before him, he loves to elevate. Does it make any sense that Jesus says that it's people who give who are going to receive? Now, you think, just just do the math with me for a second. If I give away, do I have more or do I have less? I have less, don't I? So if I give away, how am I going to be enriched? By? And the answer is, well, God just honors your faith. Again and again through the scriptures, God loves people to be put in a position of deliberate weakness so that they can express dependence on him. And that was what was going on here when they're marching around Jericho. Just... Toss out all of your war strategies and do what I tell you, and then see how God says, how God delivers. Here's our third example, Rahab. What a woman. <laughs> By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now this woman is one of the citizens of Jericho, the city we've just been talking about. And she's notable because she's basically disqualified on two counts from ever being used by God. The first is that she's a prostitute. Which, you know, when you're thinking about great heroes of faith through history, you don't tend to have a long list of prostitutes in that list, do you? She's a prostitute, first of all. Imagine, you know, how many people in British history have been honored with OBEs for their services to prostitution. Not many, right? So this woman is, is completely immoral and degraded in her life and lifestyle. And here she is. God gets his hand on her and says, of all the people in Jericho, God's going to save that woman. Why? Because when the spies come into town to come and check the place out, they stay in her house. It's like an Airbnb thing going on. <laughs> they stay in her house and she says, look, we've all heard how great you guys are. And how great your God is. And we're pretty scared. Will you save me when you come and conquer my city? She harbors the spies. She keeps their presence secret. She arranges for their escape. And then she arranges with them to save herself and her family. But here she is, a woman in the weakest possible situation. First, as I said, that she's a prostitute. The second, that she's not Jewish. She's not a Hebrew. If you know the story of the Old Testament, that's a problem. Because God called a certain people. So here we are, a woman, the least likely person to be used by God and to be saved by God. And yet, how amazing that she made it into the roll call of faith in Hebrews 11. He didn't have to mention her. Why? What is he trying to show us? He's showing us the sweetness of God's grace and power. That first of all, he loves to move in the lives of people who... Who are immoral. People who think they're moral. Basically are excluded from the church. It's only people who realize. Their complete spiritual bankruptcy. Before God. As Rahab must have done. Who are included. It shows God's grace to her. In that here she is. A brand new convert. And her faith is so mighty. That she gets her name. In Hebrews 11. And it shows God's grace that he loves to weave such people into his plans. Have you ever read Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1? A couple of millennia later, when Jesus is born, it tells us his, his ancestry. And in, right there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, he names Rahab as one of Jesus' ancestors. The prostitute, as if Jesus needed any more scandal, his unmarried mother giving birth to him. But there, there's, she's not the only one, by the way. He's surrounded in scandal and Jesus' genealogy. This is how God works. He chooses the weak. And then he honors her by giving her a place in the genealogy of Jesus, our Savior. It's beautiful, isn't it? Here's our fourth example. Gideon. Gideon is one of the judges. When I talk about judges, don't think about guys in, in a white... Curly-head wigs um, sat in, like, Southwark Crown Court or something. Think about, like, Judge Dredd, who goes in and executes judgment with his weapons. That's how these guys operated. They were were kind of, like, executing judgment, like leading the people, but also fighting the enemies. That's exactly what you should imagine. So um, Gideon's one of the early ones of these judges in the Book of Judges, and uh, his task is to lead the people into war. Against the Midianites. The Midianites are sworn enemies to Israel. And at this point in the story, there are 135,000 Midianites who've come to slaughter the Israelites. 135,000 of them, which is a pretty large army by any standards. Gideon is weakened on two counts. The first is, if we can use a sort of modern terminology, he has extraordinarily low self-esteem. When God calls him and says, I want you to come and lead my people, his answer is, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. You know, he's the equivalent of like a chaiwala in Slumdog Millionaire. This guy is nothing in the people of Israel. His father's house is considered very weak and minor, and he is considered to be the runt of his father's house. Now, do you think God maybe had a purpose in choosing Gideon? Do you think maybe that was deliberate? So he's weakened by his own sense of lack of self-esteem and and courage. But then also you add to that the fact that God then whittles down what army he has. So he has an army of 32,000 people. And God so arranges things. You know, It's 32,000 against 135,000. So it's about a a five-to-one ratio there. 4 to 1 can one of you mathematicians help me out here please anyway it's not good and uh, god whittles it down to just 300 men interesting number 300 so Gideon is weakened on not only in his own sense of ability to lead these people but also just turns around and says is this it is this the army i've got to beat the Midianites with, and God does it very deliberately when you read the story, you get the impression this is what God wanted all along. In fact, when, when God goes after Gideon, he finds him hiding in the wine press, beating out his wheat, so he 's doing it where he 's not supposed to be doing it, because he 's hiding from the Midianites because he 's so scared. God chooses the guy who's cowering in a corner. And then he, he arranges that this army gets whittled down this way. And he gives us a reason. God says to him, um, He says, The people with you are too many, the 32,000 soldiers, are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So you can imagine this, this kind of four and a half to one ratio thing going on. They could have, if they'd beaten the Midianites, they could have said, Well, you know, we, we are, we're just particularly. And, you know, we just did really well that day. Our strategy worked out, you know, and my, 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 my sword arm just was really in good shape that day. And we just somehow won. And they could have said, wow, we're, we're pretty special. We're like special forces soldiers. And it could have been explainable on human terms. And God says, there's absolutely no way you're going to beat them that, like that. I'm not going to allow it just in case you think that you did it. So he says, I'm going to completely obliterate your army down to 300 men. He puts them through a bunch of tests until they arrive at this 300. And then they go and beat the Midianites by this incredible story of how it happened. All of it just keeps underlining the thing I'm trying to tell you, friends. Relentlessly, through example after example, we're learning that God prefers the weak. And if you're not weak... He'll make you weak so that he can use you. Isn't this what Jesus said to Paul? When Paul says he was struggling with what he calls a thorn in his side, we don't know what it was. Was it his bad eyesight? Was it a sickness he had? Was it um, a temptation he kept wrestling with? And God says, I'm, in, in praying, he says, I'm not going to re- remove it from you. Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He says, I prefer you when you're in a position of weakness. Because he explains, he says, Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. Do you feel weak? Jesus can use that. Our next example is Barak. He's another one of the judges, except Barak's job is to beat a different king called Sisera. Sisera is notable for having 900 chariots, which is very meaningless to us, but I take it that that was a lot. Iron chariots. And Barak's main distinction in the story is that when Deborah the prophetess tells him to go and fight Sisera, Barak turns to her and says, I'll only go if you come with me. Now, for us, that doesn't sound like much, but I think for them, just to put it in context, it's a little bit like asking your mummy to go with you to the bathroom when you're a grown adult. In fact, it, that's kind of the point when Deborah turns to him and says, I will go with you. This is in Judges 4. But he says the, she says, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. He's saying, because you've shown such cowardice that you want to bring a woman along to battle with you, God's going to make sure that it's a woman who gets the glory at the end of the, at the, end of the day. Now, why is it that Barak is in this account in Hebrews 11 instead of Deborah or Yael, the woman who actually kills Cicero? The, uh, the, kill the answer, of course, is because he wants to show us it was the weak one. Barak, the slightly cowardly commander-in-chief. Then our next example is Samson. Every boy's hero. Again, he's one of the judges. He's the man who um, has this miracle strength. In fact, from birth, he's devoted to God. So he's not allowed to, he's devoted to God as a Nazarite, which is a special class of Israelite. It's a voluntary class. It's like signing up to the Marines or something. And this guy is like, here's the thing. The Nazarites have to grow their hair. They can never cut it. They are never allowed to touch alcohol or anything fermented. They can't have anything from a dead... They can't touch a dead body. And they've got to sort of abide by all these rules, but then they're kind of devoted to God. Most of the Nazarites were just ordinary blokes with long hair. Samson's unique because God's power rests on him in an extraordinary way. Now, I need to just underline for you at this point, all the Bible all the children's Bibles that you've ever seen are wrong because they always depict Samson with mighty flowing locks and massive biceps and pectoral muscles. But that makes no sense because his power was miracle power. So you don't want to think about like Hulk Hogan slash Schwarzenegger going to battle and beating all the Philistines. You want to think about Sheldon Cooper going into battle. And this is what he's like, except that he's also a womanizer. So this guy is physically in and of himself he's weak as becomes plain when god removes his strength from him he's immoral he's a womanizer and he, his life is just one failure after another he's pretty stupid as well because you remember the story with delilah how delilah tricks him and she says tell me tell me the secret to your strength samson my lovely my darling and he goes to sleep and he makes something he makes something up and then when she goes to sleep she sees if it works so it's like tie my hair into seven braids or, or 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 put it in a new loom or things like this and he keeps he keeps going to sleep and she keeps trying it and then she wakes him up the philistines are upon you and he wakes up and then he like breaks the loom apart or he breaks the ropes and he's like well I'm Samson and every time he wakes up and he's fine and then and then she tries it again except like this is a third or fourth time and he goes to sleep and he he actually falls for it this time. And he says, if you cut my hair, my strength is gone. And of course, that's when the Philistines come in. His strength is gone. He's taken captive by the Philistines. They blind him. They tie him up. And then they parade him in the temple of Dagon, their Philistine god. So he's he's immoral. He's physically in and of himself weak. He's really intellectually challenged. And... Areas on display before the foreign god, like a trophy saying, our god's better than your god. And it's at that point in the story, when Samson is his very weakest, when God humbles his face into the dust, that Samson then, in his blindness, cries out to God and says, give me strength one more time. Puts his hands on the pillars in the temple, pulls the entire thing down, and kills massive number of people as his exercise of deliverance. And in a sense, even Samson, for all his failures, becomes a little bit like a Christ-like example because of his self-sacrifice as a savior for his people. How amazing. Are you with me, friends? This is relentlessly the worst examples that we could think of in the Old Testament. People who should be disqualified on so many levels and God just says, I'm going to use You. It's like you go on X-Factor and choose the guy who can't sing just to sort of make your record label great. And it's like, why does God do that? It just doesn't make any sense. Our next example is Jephthah. Uh, You you probably, if you've got a Bible, you might even want to turn here. Judges 11. Um, Jephthah has got this, he's another one of the judges, and we're told three things about him at the start of Judges 11. First, it says he's a mighty warrior, but it says he was the son of a prostitute. So he's illegitimate. And uh, which obviously is a problem in many cultures and certainly was in their culture. He's illegitimate. Then it tells us that he was disowned by his own family in the next verse. It says, um, "It says when his wife's, Gilead, Gilead's wife's sons grew up, which is Jephthah's brothers, his half-brothers, it says they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So they say, you're not one of us because your mum is a prostitute, not the, not the legitimate wife of our father. So... Be gone. Be gone with you, Jephthah. And then the last thing it says about him, in verse 3, it says, Jephthah fled from his brothers, lived in the land of Tov, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So it's like he went, you know, you ever been in a pub in the daytime in London? It's always a depressing experience. You see, like, guys on their own, like, they, with their head hanging over their pint. And you think, your life just, why are you here? Like, why are you here now? Why are you alone? Why are you drinking, you know, in the middle of the day? And basically, that was the guys that Jephthah had around him. Worthless fellows, it says. Guys who, you know, no direction in life, didn't know what they're doing. And then, you know, I'm sure you've got the twist in the plot by now, haven't you? Because it seems to be happening again and again. God decides he's going to use this guy. Jephthah, he's the one I'm going to use. His people need some help. He comes in, leads them into battle. It says in verse 29, then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Just to confirm to you, That this is God's choice. God pours out his spirit on this guy, this reject, with his worthless friends. Here's our next example, David. Probably the most famous of all the ones we've looked at. David's story is one of relentless emphasis on his weakness. Just thinking about the early parts of David's story, we won't bother with the whole thing. But just a couple of things that stand out. You think about how he became king in the first place. Samuel the prophet is told by God to go and anoint one of Jesse's sons. It looks like Jesse's got about eight sons. Seven of them are in the house, the older brothers. And the first thing he does is when he arrives, he looks on Eliab, who I assume is the oldest, and says to him, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. In other words, surely this guy is God's choice. Look at this guy. Look at his Look at his shoulders. Those biceps. This guy can lead the people. And then God just keeps, God says to him, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. One of the most searching verses in the Bible. What does God see when he looks at your heart? So he goes through all, all seven of the older brothers and says, no, that's not the one. No I'm, no, I'm really confused. And he says, have you got any more sons, Jesse? And Jesse's like, oh, yeah, I forgot. I do actually. I do have another one. I just totally forgot about him. He's out in the field looking after the sheep. So obviously he's the guy who's he's drawn the short straw. He's out in the field looking after the sheep, which is not where you want to be. Like, and, and God says, that's the one. David. And then, uh, you know, in the next chapter, all the older brothers go out to war because they're the fighting the Philistines. They're always fighting the Philistines. And they're out of war, and then this is the story of Goliath. Goliath comes up and says, you know, anyone who fight me can fight me. If I win, we beat you. If, if you win, you beat us. Let's just arrange this by a battle of champions. It's something that apparently happened in ancient warfare occasionally. Except, of course, the problem is Goliath is enormous. And um, David's not even there. Because David is the runt boy in the field looking after the sheep. And someone's got to do that job. But he keeps hearing news that Israel, you know, was sent by his father to go and give food to his brothers. So he's kind of like, he's kind of the lunch boy, brings his food to his brothers, finds out that that no one's willing to step out into the field to fight Goliath. So he's rejected on two counts. Not only is he the brother that Jesse forgot about, but then he's also the one who's not a warrior and doesn't go out to fight. At which point, you know the story. I mean, Goliath is nine foot tall. He carries a spear that weighs 66 kilograms, which I'm guessing is about the same weight as Jamie Harper. So you imagine, in one arm, he can carry a spear that's, that's that heavy. Jamie's objecting. How heavy are you, mate? Oh, 76, wow. Okay, so I was, I was out by a long way. So um, if you chop off one of Jamie's arms, then that's like how heavy Goliath's spear is. But David, this guy, the reject guy, who's, in, who's not even made the cut to join the army decides, I'm going to fight him. He tries on Saul's armor. It doesn't quite fit because he's probably quite young. You know how before you're 25 and you, you don't have your man strength and you're still really skinny, and then when you're 25, all the food just piles on. And he, he doesn't even fit Saul's armor, so he's like wobbling around in this stuff. And he says, but the thing is he has this, this gut defiance. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God? So while David has all these disqualifying weaknesses, the one thing he has is faith. He just knows God's going to save him, protect him, and deliver him. So he goes out to fight him with his sling. Then you've got Samuel. Just a couple more to go. Samuel's another outsider. Samuel, the prophet, on three counts, his mum is barren. And uh, you know that was always seen as a sign of the lack of God's favor. She doesn't have any children. She cries out to God, and so Samuel is kind of this mercy child, born in weakness because it's only because of his mum's pleading with God that she got a child at all. So then he becomes, she says, "You know, I'll devote him to you, Lord." And he goes to work in the temple. But here's the thing: Samuel's not a priest, and he doesn't belong to the priestly family. So what he's doing in the temple is just basically he's just running around doing the dog's body jobs because he could never aspire to be one of the priests in the temple. And then God, you know, God calls him when he's just a little boy to be a prophet. And to my knowledge, he's the only person in the, in the Bible who's called to be a prophet in boyhood. So here we have this son of a barren woman, if that's not a contradiction in terms. A non-priest called to be a prophet from boyhood. No one listens to boys, do they? Like no one listens to what, you know, if he stands up and says, thus says the Lord. They'd be like, yeah, go back to bed. But somehow God says, I'm going to use you. And he starts giving the word of God to Eli, the priest. And then he grows up and becomes this king anointer who anoints Saul and then anoints David and then you know, leads the people in that sense. Wow. And then finally, just as a throwaway comment here in Hebrews 11 and the prophets, two things you need to know about prophets in the Bible. The first is that they hear from God. And the second is that nobody listens. So in, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this. He says, um, he's talking about when Christians get persecuted. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's what people know about prophets. Nobody listens. They have hard lives. No one wants to hear what they have to say because it's usually challenging and difficult words. James chapter 5 also says about them. He says uh, verse 10, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So he's saying, if you want to think about people who suffered the most in life and get some inspiration, just think about anyone who stood up and said, this is what God's saying. They don't have easy lives. Friends, I I think probably I've made my case by now. Relentlessly, example after example of all these people who made these extraordinary, profound impact for the kingdom of God. Every one of them, without exception, found themselves in a position of being ill-equipped, ill-prepared, under-resourced, just the last choice. And God says, you are perfect. I want to just ask as we bring it round to a close what is God teaching us here's the first thing that God has a preference for the weak and the unlikely I don't know you know how you regard yourself spiritually before God you know maybe you look at your life and think you've been disqualified on account of something some mistake you made, some ongoing struggle you have, just the lack of gifting or the lack of confidence or whatever it is. God loves it when we're in that place because it's only there that you start to realize your need of him. When people feel self-sufficient, God says, sorry, I can't use you. When they come and they're on their knees before him in desperation, like, you know, like the Israelites, panicking. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? And they just, in their desperation, cry out to God. God says, yeah, I'm going to, that's faith. It's a tiny bit, but it's faith. He does it because he has a preference for the weak and the unlikely. And friends, isn't that exactly where he puts his own son, Jesus, when he comes to take on human flesh? And be born to be our savior. I love it in Hebrews, sorry, in Isaiah 53. When it says about Jesus. That it says he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty. That we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. You know, he's, what he's saying basically is that. Jesus had a really great personality. But if you walk past him in the street. You wouldn't turn your head. It says he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So all the time through the Bible when God is saying, I'll use weak people, he's teaching us a little bit about his preference and his, his desire to use the weak and then he puts Jesus in the place of ultimate weakness. A man despised and rejected who will be so despised, so rejected that he'll be put on a cross for you. God's preference for the weak. Another thing he's teaching us is God's desire for faith. Because if you could look at all these 10 examples that I pulled out to you and say, see any other commonality then you might Explain it like that. Let's say if they were all just clever or all were witty or all were good looking or all were just Jewish. But none of those things are true of them. The only things they have in common with each other is, as I've shown you, their weakness, but also their faith. That at some point in their story, they trust God or, as we heard in the worship time, they step out onto the water. They have to. They don't have a choice. It's their only hope. They rely on God. God's delight in faith. Another thing you see God teaching us through this is that he loves to show us his glory because this is how he works. What do I mean? I mean that if great achievements were always accomplished in God's kingdom by advantage, by privilege, by gifting, by resources, then where is God glorified in that. If you can explain the power and success of what God's doing in and through his people by earthly means, then God does not get the glory. Which is why most of the time through history, when you're looking at the power that God puts on his church to start changing societies and nations, as has so often happened, especially in times of extraordinary revival, you always find the church at its weakest before that happens. That's why I have so much hope for the church in Britain today. The weaker we get, the more we learn to pray. The more God's going to get the glory when he turns the situation around, which he will. When the church is strutting And self-confident. Or when Christians are strutting and self-confident. God overlooks those people. Whatever they achieve is not him. And it's not for his glory. It's about the glory of God. You crave more gifting. You crave more opportunity. But don't you realize God has put you where he wants you. So that you learn to cry out to him. Here's the last thing. It teaches us the pattern of how God saves. Isn't this exactly what it means to become a Christian? Step one realize that you are weak, that you cannot stand on your own two feet before the Holy God and justify yourself in the way you've lived. If you attempt it, you will fail. It's the first qualifier for what it means to become a Christian is that you must humble yourself. Recognize that you are poor in spirit. Weakness. Then you add in faith. A weak person learns to cling on to God because he is their only hope. And that is exactly what it means to become a Christian. You realize that you have no other hope. And you say, Lord, I need Jesus to save me because I cannot save myself. It's a tiny seed of faith. And God says, I will honor that. And then the result is that not you are glorified through this, but that God himself is glorified. Because if we, as in the passage Chloe was reading, if we were alive before God found us and self-capable, capable and self-sufficient then you know what he did for us was just add a little bit extra and we were okay but actually what did it say in Ephesians 2 it says we were dead in our trespasses and sins slave to the to our flesh and to the world and to the devil and then God comes in and says I'm going to resurrect you but God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us again and again without exception that is how God chooses to work, to find the hopeless situations and turn them around. And that, friends, is how you become a Christian. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter stands up and preaches, this is a few months after Jesus being crucified and raised from the dead. But very few people know that this has happened. And the people who Jesus assembled as his followers are are quite small in number and quite weak. But on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and something radical, some transformation takes place in the people. And Peter starts preaching the gospel. And he preaches with such piercing clarity and power that all the Israelites in in Jerusalem who hear him that day, and there are thousands of them listening to him, the same people it seems who crucified Jesus because Peter points his finger at them and says, you killed the Lord of glory. They're crushed in their spirits. And they turn to Peter and they say, brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. Weakness. Peter gives in the prescription, he says, exercise your faith. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And then God is glorified as thousands of people come into the church. And if you need to make a commitment today, maybe you think, I'm not a Christian. I don't think I'm saved yet. I don't think I'm part of this family. And maybe all you know about yourself is that you are weak. Friend, that is exactly where you need to be. If you still think that you've got a chance without Jesus, then I'm afraid this isn't for you. But if you look at your situation, look at your own life and think, without Christ, my life will achieve nothing, amount to nothing, and ultimately I'll be lost into eternity. He looks at you in your weakness and he says, I'm going to have you. All you must do is, as it were, reach out a hand by praying and saying, Lord Jesus, I want you to save me today. And he'll do it.